Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookson. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. If you're being encouraged or challenged by this teaching, would you consider giving us a five-star review? That review and rating moves us up the list so others might find us more easily so they too can benefit from this podcast. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. On to part two of our series, Emotion Commotion. It's been a series that I've been praying over and spending a lot of time in preparation because it's something that I really believe we desperately need today is a, is a biblical response to our feelings. And so um, I hope that you'll take it to heart. <clears throat> hope you'll hear the word of the Lord as, as it addresses our emotional well-being, our emotional life. I hope you'll walk away with some tools that can, that can impact your life for good. And here's the deal. When we're out of control emotionally, our testimony suffers. So um, when this is you at work, right? Our testimony suffers. How does our emotional well-being tie into our spiritual well-being? How does it tie into our testimony? How does it tie into the gospel of Jesus Christ? It ties in quite validly. It's quite important for us to display something that the world doesn't often see. And sadly, it seems like Christians are some of the worst people when it comes to controlling their emotions. Can I share a story? I'm picking on myself so that hopefully that you will, um, you will uh, uh, not think that I'm picking on you. And, and I've, it's taken me years to learn how to allow God to reign over my emotional well-being. So I used to work with this kid. This is back when I was in my, I want to say late 20s. I'm hoping I wasn't 30 yet. Hoping I was still in my 20s when I responded and reacted this way. There was this kid that I was working with, and he was a character, and he just, have you ever met someone? They just knew how to twist that knife push the button, and they didn't do it intentionally. Now, I've met in people that are intentional about pushing your buttons. Anybody ever meet someone like that? They just, in, Kim just pointed at me. Thanks. They intentionally push your buttons, and this kid wasn't. He was just kind of this annoying kid that should have known how to work. He was 21 years old, hadn't gotten his license yet, no motivation, and I don't know what exactly he did this particular day. Some of you have heard this story. 
But I lost it. I mean, I lost it. And I used to do solid surface countertops, um, Corian countertops. If you've heard of that, fabricate, I'd fabricate and install. And I built a countertop in the lobby with the radius on it there. And that used to be my vocation. And I was standing on one side of this dusty shop. And he was standing on the other side. And the owner of the company was about halfway between us. And I just started screaming at him. You're nothing but a baby. You're never going to amount to anything. And I mean, I was just yelling at him across the shop. And my boss, Troy, he's the nicest guy you're ever going to meet. Troy, right, Trish? Troy's like the most um, emotionally controlled man. I mean, he is just calm. He talks like this. I sliced my finger open one day with a chisel. It's like what I do. And I'm um, in the hospital, and they're stitching me up or whatever they were doing, and he calls Trish up, and he's, hi, Trish. Is this Trish? Yeah, this is Troy. Eric's in the hospital. It's going to be okay. And she's like, what's the matter? Because he's all, that's what you do when somebody's cut their head off, not slice their <laughs> finger. But anyways, he yells at me. I'm going off on this kid. I'm just ripping him a new one. I'm just shredding him. I have a tongue. Uh, as the worship team knows. Sometimes my tongue takes control of everything else in my body. And I'm just shredding this kid. Troy, Mr. Mild, meek, yelled at me, Eric, stop! And in that moment, the Holy Spirit whispered to my heart, you need to apologize to this young man. And, and I thought to myself, because I'm in control, I'm, I'm being controlled, rather, I'm being controlled still by my emotions. So the Holy Spirit's trying to edge in. Holy Spirit, I believe God speaks to our hearts, and he says, you need to apologize to this young man. I'm not going to give you his name. Um, we'll call him Billy Bob. You got to apologize to it because that sort of fits. You know, apologize to Billy Bob. And, and what did I say? Anybody know what I said? I will not. Well, no, I'm not, because I'm right. He's a... So God now, this is before lunch, God keeps telling me, you've got to apologize to him. And I don't know if you know it or not, but I, I, I can be a little stubborn at times. Pretty rare for me to be stubborn, but I can be stubborn at times. And so I'm, I'm arguing with God. I'm, I am not. I will not. No, I'm not. And he's like, yes, you are. No, I'm not. Oh, I am not. He deserved every word. He's a baby. I mean, he's working in the real world now. It's time to put on your big pants, right? Big boy pants. You're in the real world. Not in high school, right? I, I'm, I'm really ramped up because I'm right. But I wasn't acting right. So I go to lunch. I take out my book because I like to read on lunch. And my, you know exit four where the Burger King is in Londonderry? I'm out behind the Burger King. There's this beautiful like pond and a little island in the middle. I used to paint back there with my oil paints. And um, halfway through this oil painting, they drained the pond for that stupid cracker barrel. I was so irritated. Anyways, um, 
while I'm on lunch, I'm trying to ignore God. I'm trying to read my book. I just want to read my book. I just want to enjoy my story. God says, well, since you're being so stubborn about this, now you've got to apologize to Billy Bob and to Troy, and you've got to say it this way. You've got to say, I'm sorry. Please don't hold this against my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he would not have behaved that way. What do you think I said? Heck no. I'm not saying that. I mean, it's bad enough to say I'm sorry I was wrong. Now you want me to actually bring Jesus into it? Bring Jesus into the workplace? Bring Jesus into this conversation, God? No! Well, fortunately, God won that battle. And that was a lesson for me in um, not allowing my emotions to control my response. See, as Christians, we are Christians. Wherever we go, we bear the standard of Christ. And whether that be how good a worker we are, or how well our emotions are being controlled, and, and how healthy we are emotionally, um, whether it's how we behave toward others, we carry the standard of Christ. We've talked about emotions and, and the different images that uh, the different feelings that these images engender in our hearts. This is one that I find, the one before this and this one, that I find is very prevalent among believers today, this feeling of depression or self-loathing, this feeling of hatred for oneself, this, this feeling of guilt that, that, that so many believers walk around carrying these burdens on their shoulders. And I mean, part of it is because we want to be holy as he is holy. And we want to be righteous as he is righteous. And we begin to have this overly developed sense of guilt in our lives, and we forget that our guilt was nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to be living lives filled with shame and guilt, and yet we are, and we don't know how to handle that. And so last week we talked about this. We said, first of all, emotions are, are godly. Emotions are godly. And, and the proof that we have for emotions being godly is that God has emotions. Right? God has emotions. Jesus wept. Jesus loved. Jesus got angry. Jesus was passionate. Um, we have the Holy Spirit is the spirit of joy. The Holy Spirit is grieved. The Holy Spirit is passionate. We have God the Father. God the Father was passionate, is passionate. In the Old Testament, you see the passion of God the Father. You see the justice, the sense of justice in God the Father. You see God the Father loving. You see God the Father hating. All right, so we know that emotions are godly because God displays emotions. And all through the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, we see that God displays emotions. And so because emotions are godly, they are innately, in and of themselves, are good. They're creation of God. Now, we have two paradigms uh, about emotions, typically, that are, that are uh, on display. We have the Stoic paradigm. We have this, this idea that emotions are not helpful, that emotions are harmful, that they're useless. We don't need emotions. And so we have that side of the emotional spectrum where the person just pushes the emotions down, ignores their emotions. Emotions are not important. We don't need emotions. They're feminine. 
right? Guys, their emotions are feminine. And so somebody might want to tell Jesus that. Right. Somebody might want to tell Jesus he's being feminine when he's loving on his disciples, when he's weeping over his friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Might want to tell Jesus that as he looks over Jerusalem and weeps and his heart is broken for people that won't come to him. Might want to tell Jesus he's being effeminate. Emotions are good. They allow us outlet. They can guide us. They add spice to life. But So the Stoic, he'll say emotions are bad. We don't want emotions. We don't want to show emotions. On the other hand, and this is more of our generation today, it's just let it all out, man. Let it all out, right? We went through the 90s, and everybody wanted a sensitive man. I want a sensitive man. I want a man in touch with his emotions. Right? And so you just get people that have no emotional control, no emotional stability, uh, whichever the way the wind blows or whichever way their emotion blows, they're following that emotion. And so what you have now is you have marriages that fall apart because commitment is trumped by emotion. I don't feel happy. I don't feel love. I don't feel like staying with this person. Right? And so we have people following their hearts. I was at work and I met a woman. And I know she's not my wife, but I just fell in love with her. I mean, she started telling me her story. I started telling her my story. And the next thing I know, I'm just so in love with her. And we're just connected in a way I haven't felt with my wife in years. I can't help it. I just love her. And so what happens? The person leaves the wife and goes with this other person who's married to somebody else. So those of you that are sitting here today and you're like, oh, we should just follow our emotions and follow our hearts. That's good if you have a godly heart and a heart that is under the reign and control of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if your heart is not godly and it's not under the reign and control of Jesus Christ, you are going to follow your heart off a cliff into the abyss. And you're not only going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt others. You know, when I followed my heart in the shop and I started screaming at Billy Bob, I was hurting him. I was belittling him. And I was demeaning him. And you know what? It didn't matter to me because I lost my temper and it felt good. Anybody got a temper here? Raise your hand. Somebody got honesty. When you lose your temper and you start yelling, doesn't it feel good? It's like a drug. It's not good, but it feels good. And when you're in the middle of that funnel, you don't care about the fallout. But eventually, the emotion runs its course. And then guess what? Just like the guy that got drunk, got wasted, and crashed his car, you have to deal with the consequences of your emotion commotion. So emotions are good, but they can be harmful and they can be helpful. Now before I jump into this message any further, I'm glad I put my, a reminder for myself. I want us to understand something. 
that there are some people that have a physical imbalance, a chemical imbalance that causes their emotions to be more powerful and more in control than the average person. Okay? Uh, we are destigmatizing what's referred to as mental illness today. I thank God that mental illness is becoming destigmatized. It used to be a little understood science. And it used to be preachers would say, if you just had a little more faith, you wouldn't be depressed. If you just had a little more faith, you wouldn't be going off the deep end all the time. There are cases where our brains are overproducing certain chemicals, and when that physical reaction happens, good luck controlling your emotions. So if you're on medication today, listen, number one, my study of mental health when my daughter Kirsten developed psychosis revealed this. If you're going to be medicated, you should also be counseled. The magic pill needs to be joined with proper behavior and activity, right? Proper reason. So what happens, you get the magic pill. That evens things out. But now you still have to learn how to respond and react to the emotions as they come to you, just like everybody else. So what the pill does, it evens you out, but it doesn't just magically give you control over all of your emotions. You still need to learn strategies. I had a man in a church I used to pastor many years ago now. This man had a mental illness, but he chose to stop taking his medication because he found Philippians chapter 4. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are noble. And he would, he would memorize that verse and he would repeat it to himself over and over again. And so he thought, by faith, I can handle my chemical imbalance. And what happened was, and this is often the case with people, in his case he was bipolar, um, they, they don't really realize just how bad things are getting. And he used to go to his son, uh, on the border of beating his son, but certainly demeaning and belittling and screaming at him one hour. And then Jekyll and Hyde, the next minute, he's hugging him and loving him and telling him what a great kid he is. That was going on at home, and we were not aware as a church until he started doing it in the church. And some people saw this behavior and brought it to my attention, and that's where it's great to be a pastor. You have to do something, Pastor. Yay me. I brought him up to the office with some other godly people, and I confronted him on his behavior, and that's when I found out that he had, had mental illness and had even been hospitalized previously. And I had to explain to him, because sometimes Christians, they have this idea that I don't need medication. That's wrong to take medication. I should just have enough faith. I can pray away, right? Listen. Nate has a broken finger. Now, can God heal a broken finger? Sure he can. Does he always heal a broken finger in a miraculous fashion? 
not usually in my experience. And so what does Nate have on his hand? Anybody seen Nate's hand lately? What has he got? He's got a cast on his hand. When you have an illness, we have little Sarah Johnson down at Boston Children's Hospital. She's ill. We're not just tossing the dice hoping that she's just going to recover. We're going to pray for her, and then we're going to try to follow the wisdom of God as he leads us to doctors, and we pray for the doctors. Folks, when you have an illness, you need to treat it. That being said, when you're treating that illness, you still need to learn the strategies. You still need to learn what the Bible says about how to handle your emotions in a healthy way. So, I hope that you will take that. Some of you that are on medication, this is not an attack. As a matter of fact, I hope if you're on medication, you'll take these, these, these instructions from the Word of God and, and this counsel, and you'll apply it to your life. And those of you that are not, those of you that are basically healthy, I hope that you'll take this message and these messages, and you'll apply them to your life so that you'll be more peaceful in your dealings with your loved ones. So emotions are good in and of themselves, but they can be, brother, click this slide please, they can be harmful and they can be helpful. They can be harmful or they can be helpful. Many of us, we find ourselves in the grip of our emotions. We find ourselves like I was that particular day, out of control. Um, uh, yelling and saying things that ordinarily we would never say. But we find ourselves um, responding badly in certain situations because we are in the control of our emotions. I'm going to say something that's totally crazy. I'm sure you've never seen it. I don't remember if I said it last week, but imagine you're at a funeral. Someone has died. You get a text message telling you that you just, um, that, that your wife is pregnant and that she just found out the sex of the baby and it's going to be a boy. And you're at this funeral, and you're the preacher, because that's what happens to me. And you had to miss the doctor appointment. And so your wife, knowing that you're dying to find out, she texts you a message. And you look down on your watch, and you, and you see on your watch, while you're preaching the message, while you're connecting to these people emotionally, weep with those that weep, the Bible says. And it says on your watch, Would it be inappropriate to go, woo, in the middle of that funeral? All right, we talk about screaming, yelling, and losing your temper. Listen, there's, there's times to jump for joy. That's probably not one of them. And most of us would say, absolutely not. I would never do that. But you'll, you'll do the temper one. Or you'll fall in love and follow your heart. And you'll allow emotions to rule you in other ways. This is a ludicrous idea. However, it illustrates a principle. There are plenty of times where we have learned that controlling our behavior, no matter how we may feel, is the appropriate response to that emotion. So we would say, weep with those that weep. We'd look at our watch, and inside we have this, oh my gosh, I'm having a boy. I was walking on cloud nine for like three weeks when I found out I was having a boy. 
Not that I don't love my girls, I do, but man, there's just something about raising a boy. I just, I was so excited. So you would, you would weep with those that weep, and you would press pause. You go out, shake hands, I'm so sorry. And then you get in your car, and you, then you have a Holy Ghost breakdown. Woo! And you call your wife, and then you call your brother, and you call your other brother who doesn't have boys, and gloat that you're having a boy. I would not have ever done that. Maybe just a little bit. Emotions seem to overwhelm so many people, sometimes for good reason. God has given us a gift of shock to help us when we're overwhelmed. But what happens when we just want to lash out, repress, or run away? What do we do? When we're facing circumstances that elicit an incredible emotional response, how do we react? How do we, how do we begin to deal with these stressors in our lives? How do we begin to deal with these, this, this inner turmoil? Well, I want to give you one word this morning that... I hope you'll take away with you. There is hope for those of you that struggle emotionally. I'm not talking about the, 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 the medical and mental illness. I'm talking about just your average Joe who is just an emotional person. You just struggle emotionally. That was me, by the way. And I still have to live out these principles on a daily basis or else my emotions take me into places that I really should not go. Into this mess, this commotion, we hear the words of this man named Paul. He was called of God to be an apostle of the Gentiles. And, 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 and he wrote this letter. This is his swan song. This is sort of his last will and testament. He wrote this letter to his son Timothy, his son in the faith. He... Um, Come on, guys. You're killing me here. Who's back there? Is that Nate back there trying to get me back to last week? The Apostle Paul um, had brought this young man, Timothy, into the ministry, had taught him, had raised him in the faith, had tutored him, and now we're in A.D. 67, and Paul the Apostle is in prison for the second and final time. He's imprisoned by, by, uh, by a man named Nero. Uh, Nero is, is probably one of the most wicked emperors Rome had ever seen. In A.D. 64, there was a fire that took out a large majority of the city of Rome. I think I read uh, 10 out of the 13 provinces of that city burned to the ground. The people were blaming Nero for this fire. So what did Nero do? This wicked emperor, what did Nero do? He shifted the blame to this new pseudo-new sect, this new cult. You know what the cult was referred to as? Christians. He blamed the Christians. 
And thus began the first systemic persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. And it went on for some time. It was a horrible persecution. And in the midst of this persecution, this man Paul and his brother apostle Peter got caught up and were both incarcerated in Rome at the same time. This is what it said of this time period where, where Nero was persecuting the Christians. This is, by, this is a quote from Roman historian Tacitus. He said this, they were covered, Christians were covered with the skins of beasts and then they were torn asunder, they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. You follow what I'm saying? They used Christians as torches, as streetlights. So, into that environment, Paul is writing his last will and testament. He's writing this letter to this young man, Timothy. And we're going to see Timothy is a little overwhelmed. Can you imagine? How many of you have faced some stressful times? How many of you have been afraid? How many of you think that maybe you would be afraid if Donald Trump decided to blame the Christians for some horrific event in our country and further decided that it was okay from now on to murder Christians in a brutal way, light them on fire, hang them on crosses. How many of you might have come to church this morning with a little bit of trepidation? How many of you would come to church this morning if Christians were declared outlaws? And that's what happened. So into this, into this scene, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you know the history that's happening while he's writing this letter, does it lend a little more weight to the word that's capitalized? Grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace. He's in jail writing this letter. Brothers and sisters are being crucified, torn asunder, burned alive. And he's talking about grace and mercy and peace. And he, and he says to Timothy, my beloved he goes on, he says this, I thank God, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as, as my forefathers did and as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Can you, can you, can you see through this letter the affection Paul has? for his son Timothy in the faith. You see the affection? Paul is displaying what? What's Paul displaying in these first two paragraphs? Emotions, yes! 
Paul. Man, if there was a manly man, it was Paul. Paul was not afraid to throw a punch, right? Paul loved athletics. He loved sports. Paul was a man's man. He was also an intellectual. He was brilliant. And he's displaying emotion here. He's, he's opening his heart to his son. My beloved Timothy. My beloved Timothy, I'm mindful of your tears. I so badly want to get out of this prison so I can see you one last time. I pray for you night and day. Mindful of your tears. He goes on, which dwelt first in your faith, the faith that is in you, Timothy. It dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that this faith dwells in you also. Therefore, I remind you, Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's talking about the ordination of Timothy into the gospel ministry. When we lay hands on people, we ordain them to the ministry. And he goes, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. Cowardice. But of power and of love. And of a sound mind, self-control. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Paul is addressing directly the, the fear of Timothy. So I want us to begin with, first of all, his identifying with Timothy's emotions. First of all, he wants to connect. And he shares with Timothy, he loves Timothy. He expresses this love in this letter by saying it out loud. I love you, Timothy. I can't tell you the funerals that I have officiated, attended, where the dearly departed had rarely said to their family members, I love you. Rarely expressed love to their children. Moms and dads, little, here's a rabbit for you to chase. Don't just love your children. Show your children that you love your children. Go a long way toward creating good mental health in your children and express your love for them. Paul's an example for us to follow. He said so, by the way, in his letter to the Philippian church, follow me as I follow Christ. And so when he says, Paul, when Paul says, Timothy, my beloved son, Folks, we ought to be following Paul's example. I greatly desire to see you. I desire to see you, Timothy. Uh, listen, I'm mindful of your tears. I know you're going through it. I know you're having a hard time. I know, I know how you feel. Paul didn't ignore Timothy's tears. And he's not just saying, suck it up. And I know that I'm guilty of that. He is reminding Timothy of a few things, though. He wants to be filled with joy. He wants to hear of Timothy's faith, and he wants to, listen, when our children begin to do well and begin to mature emotionally, spiritually, and physically, it fills us with joy, it fills our hearts with joy. He wants to see Timothy living out this life of faith and not turning back and not quitting and not giving up. See, by this point in Paul's life, there were men that had walked the long miles with him that eventually gave up. Demas 
hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He wants Timothy's walk of faith to fill him with joy. And so I want you to feel with me the love Paul feels for his son. I want you to understand that Paul is an example to us as he expresses this love. And I want you to understand that Timothy does not disregard or dismiss or demean the emotions that Timothy is feeling. He's not dismissing him, but he is going to deal with them. He's going to attempt to help his son through this trying time. So first of all, he says this now, I'm mindful of your tears. Mindful of your tears. He's not dismissing them. He's not saying they have no validity. He's not saying they're empty. He's not saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you such a baby? I'm the one in prison, Timothy. Why are you crying? Right? You know what I can't stand? Here's one thing I can't stand. I'm going through hell. I know some of you are like, oh, pastor just swore. I've got a phone number for you. You can talk to me later. I'm not going to give it to you. We are, we are going through it. And you know when this is, this is so comforting. Are you ready for it? Tell me if you've heard this before. Well, you know what? There's always somebody got it worse than you, honey. Well, that makes me feel so much better. So if you're one of those people, and somebody is going through a trial, and it's tearing them up, stop saying that phrase. Not only does it not make them feel better that somebody's got it worse than them, it makes them feel guilty for feeling badly. So get over yourself. Get off your high horse. You're not helping. If you really want to help, are you ready for it? Weep with those that weep. Hug them. You know what helps? I'm here for you. And mean it. Timothy was... was in, in dire straits here, Timothy, it seems, as we study scriptures, it seems that Timothy was not the prototypical preacher that you would want in the pulpit. It seems as though he had a weak constitution. It seems as though he was not this dynamic, powerful man. Matter of fact, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, Timothy. Remember that? Timothy had some ailments seemingly tied to anxiety and worry and fear. And again, if you're living in AD 64 to 68, you have good reason to fear if you were a pastor of a church or even a Christian in a chair. So he considered Timothy's tears, the outward expression of many different emotions. Tears are not always an expression of of um, sadness. How many of you have been so angry you cried? You don't know how to respond and you're just like, oh, I don't know why I'm crying, I'm just so angry. It can be an expression of anger, it can be an expression of sorrow, can it, be, it can be an expression of fear. And this last, this fear seems to be the root of Timothy's trouble. He was afraid possibly of losing his life for following Jesus. 
He was possibly and likely afraid for Paul's well-being. His mentor, his father, was imprisoned in Rome where most of the city had just burned and Christians are being torn asunder by dogs and lit on fire as streetlights. And there's his father and the Lord in that city imprisoned by that emperor. Maybe he was afraid for Paul's well-being. Maybe he was afraid he wasn't up to the task. And I think Paul had gotten word that Timothy was almost immobilized, that he was at least on the edge. And so he opens this message, this, this letter, he opens this letter with this phrase, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So in order to help stabilize Timothy's emotional well-being, what does Paul address? His spiritual well-being. He addresses his spiritual standing. He reminds him that life is in Christ. He reminds him of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who he is, of his standing, of his position, the foundation of our emotional well-being as Christians rests in our relationship with God. He reminds Timothy that as a child of God, you are the benefactor. You, you, you receive the benefit of grace, of mercy, and of peace. As a child of God, you, you can receive the benefits of grace, mercy, and peace. Now, what happens when our emotions start swirling, grace, mercy, and peace, they get edged out, don't they? You know, the last thing on my mind when I was losing my temper with, 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 almost said his name, with Billy Bob, the last thing on my mind when I was losing my temper with Billy Bob was grace, mercy, and peace. I was not mindful of my position, of my standing with God, of my responsibility for the salvation of Billy Bob's soul. And this is where we have to take a step back, isn't it? Before our emotions take control of us, we need to take control of them and bring them under the authority of God. Peace is a feeling or a state of contentment and calmness. It can either be influenced and empowered by the Spirit or destroyed by circumstance in our view of it. Which we allow to influence us will determine whether we have peace or agitation. Now listen, years ago I preached a message, a series of messages called um, Shift. Emotional stability and emotional well-being, it isn't automatic. Now, for some of us, when we've been doing it for a while and we've been handling our emotions well for a while, it becomes automatic. You automatically do the right thing. Your behavior automatically lines up with what the Word of God says and the influence of the Spirit. But it's a learned behavior. If you're one that's been having outbursts, and been angry, and you lash out continually, you have created a pattern of behavior in your heart and in your mind that needs to be changed, and you've got to shift out of it. So being saved and being a Christian doesn't automatically give us a sense of peace and control. It doesn't automatically calm our fears and our anxiety. 
if being a Christian and being, uh, having the Holy Spirit and, 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 and having the Word of God automatically fixed things, my question to you, O oh, super spiritual Christian, is this. Why did Paul write this letter to Timothy saying, Timothy, I'm mindful of your fears. Mindful of your tears. Why did Paul write in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus our Lord. If it was automatic, why is Paul continually reminding us of the power that we have, of the person that we are, and of the presence of the person that owns us, Jesus. It's not automatic. Oftentimes we're faced with circumstances that are overwhelming. And I certainly believe that the circumstances Timothy was facing was absolutely overwhelming, impossible to deal with. Could you imagine a loved one imprisoned in a city that was burning Christians for entertainment? Don't you think you might be a little bit... So, Paul started out, how can I help calm Timothy's nerves? How can I help Timothy pull out of this spiral? I've got to remind him of who he is. I've got to remind Timothy that God has accepted him and that God has loved him. And that I love him, even though I'm separated from him. And then he went a step further. He dealt with his fears. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, he's, he's dealing with this one particular emotion. We can take the principle and apply it to other emotions, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, of cowardice. You don't need to run and hide, Timothy. We are to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though people around us want nothing to do with it. You've not been given a spirit of cowardice, of fear. Listen, why did I not want to apologize to Billy Bob and say, please don't hold this against Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, because of fear? Naming the name of Jesus in the marketplace can be a terrifying thing, even though you're not going to get burned at the stake. You might be made fun of. You might be ridiculed. You might be laughed at. And I was afraid of that. But God didn't give me that spirit of fear. He gave me a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Pastor Clow used to preach the latter method of witnessing. Some of you were here during that time. And as he would preach the latter method of witnessing, he would talk about taking your track, and he would say, hey, listen now, when you take your track, and you're going to leave it somewhere, or you're going to give it to someone, I want you to pray over that track, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, to take that track and to take the words on that track and to impact that life that will read that track. And he explained that the Holy Spirit, although he is great and he is powerful and he is within you, he would explain this. He'd say it's kind of like having a car with a, with a 350. Like a, he, I don't know, he probably like Chevy, but I like Ford. Like imagine having a Ford Mustang 5.0. You sit behind the wheel. 
You even turn the ignition on, and you hear that engine rev, right? That low growl. All the power in the world is not going to get you anywhere until you shift. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you, church. You have the power of God in you. Christians have an advantage over every other person in the world. Christians have an advantage over every other person in the world because we have the person of the Holy Spirit within us. But we've got to shift. We've got to shift. He reminds Timothy, you have power, you have you have love in this, a sound mind. This sound mind means sound judgment, discernment, clarity, control. J. Vernon McGee, uh, love this guy, said this, a sound mind means discipline. In other words, God does not intend that defeat should be the norm for Christian living. We should be disciplined Christians rather than slaves to our emotions. He goes on and explains we are all moved by our emotions, and this is why people send money to organizations that advertise with a picture of a poor, hungry little orphan. It motivates you. Emotions can move you. But we're not to be solely motivated and moved by our emotions. They must not master us. We are to master them. A sound mind, sound judgment, discernment, clarity, control. Have you ever met someone... This is wonderful. Some of you have heard this example. Um, I'm working for Troy, his ex-wife, wife at the time. She used to pop by the office. And I remember when we finally had to, we finally had to uh, admit that Kirsten had, had cerebral palsy and she was not going to walk. Remember that day? It was a tough day. We made that decision even though people around us thought we were giving up on our daughter. And they let us know that. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that precious? So we finally made a decision. And you know what's so wonderful about that decision? It relieved us of a lot of stress. And then we put her in her little hot pink wheelchair for the first time. And she wasn't in one of those umbrella strollers, you know? She's three, year, uh, three years old. She, she, we always have that stupid umbrella stroller. She's all, you know, all crushed down like babies in a, an umbrella stroller. But we put her in that wheelchair, and it had the proper seating for her, and she sat up so tall, so big, and she had this look of pride on her face, like I'm a big girl now. I mean, she just looked so happy and joyful in that wheelchair, and used to pop the wheel off and throw it in my back of my uh, Chevy Cavalier, and I, I had it with me for some reason, and I took it to work because I was really excited about it. This is a big deal. And I took it into the shop to show the guys. I'm like, hey, check this out. I pop the wheels off. I can put it in my car. It's so small and tiny. And this, is, this is great. This is cool. And the guys were like, oh, that's really cool. I can't believe they come in hot pink. Blah, blah. You know, we're all exclaiming over this little wheelchair and how cool it is. And, and uh, in comes the, the wife. And she looks at the chair. And out of her mouth uh, spews some words that were clearly not engaged with the brain Ever meet somebody like that? Are you someone like that? First words out of her mouth is, oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. I just said, now you know what my emotional response to that was? 
I wanted to punch in the face. I literally wanted to just punch her in the face. Did I? No. I controlled my emotional response, and I retorted, hopefully, I can't remember exactly what I said, appropriately. That's called self-control. When you feel yourself losing control and giving into your emotions, whatever they may be, without restraint, without reason, without spiritual influence, know that you are in danger of harming yourself and others. And this is where it's really important for us to understand that one of the keys to emotional maturity is a sound mind that is self-controlled. I believe in, in therapy they call this mindfulness. Being aware of your inner man. Being aware of how your emotions are affecting your behavior before you behave even. Listen, I, I, I have, by the grace of God, overcome a bad temper. I have overcome a bad temper. And here's one of the ways you overcome the bad temper. You, are you ready for it? Some of you guys are like, I want to know how you overcome a bad temper. You got a bad temper. You know that feeling you get right about here? It starts to burn. You start getting that feeling. That's your emotions telling you something's wrong. Wake up. Prepare yourself. And then you got to engage this. Engage reason and will. Emotions aren't bad. Emotions are wonderful. I don't want to not feel anger. Anger is not necessarily a negative emotion when it's dealing with injustice. Anger gives you some strength to act in an appropriate way toward injustice. I'm angry at a certain movement within the Christian denomination for abusing Christians. I'm still angry over that. Years ago, I allowed that anger to morph into bitterness and belittlement. See? An improper response to that anger. The proper response to that anger is to make sure that my church never becomes that kind of church. And to make sure that my church is a place of healing for those that have been wounded. Right? See how anger can be a wonderful tool when it's used appropriately. So there's hope. There is hope. You have the power within you. Holy Spirit, help me to recognize my emotions before they take control of me. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to close the service here. We have been given the spirit of the sound mind, of sound judgment, and of self-control. We have been given power. You can change. You can love. You can control yourself. You don't have to give in to your emotional outbursts. You don't have to give in. When you fall in love with someone that's not your wife, you don't have to chase that person. You don't have to give in to your emotions. 
You can control them and use them wisely. Again, an emotionless existence is not really living. Emotions are good and healthy and should be expressed and embraced. Hey, all thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.